My goal before the summit takes a summer break is to finish our study of the life of Abraham. So I'd like you to open to Genesis chapter 20 tonight, and that will be the text where we spend our time. I hope you had a wonderful Mother's Day, and I hope you're already praying about, saving for, and planning a wonderful Father's Day. I think Father's Day should be a three-day weekend, personally. I have have two fathers. Let me explain. Because I resemble both of them. And you've noticed uh, my resemblance to them in the time that you've known me. My first father's name is Adam. I'm related to him by dust. You see, he was made out of the dirt. That would explain why, as my wife notices, I often act like a clod. (laughs) Because I'm related to Adam, and I look a lot like him. I also have another father. His name is Abraham. I'm related to him by faith, which would explain my better moments. But, as I heard a preacher say one time, the best of men are men at best. Even my father Abraham was related to Adam by dust. So he had his dirty moments too. In fact, on at least one occasion, he was a repeat Offender. So let's read the 20th chapter of the book of Genesis together. Now, Abraham moved on from there. He meant, that means the region around Sodom and Gomorrah, where he had been living before those cities were destroyed, as we discussed last time. He moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, Will you destroy an innocent nation? Did you not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clean conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clean conscience. So I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he's a prophet. And he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, Why have you done, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, 
There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Okay, does that story sound familiar? That story ought to sound very familiar because when we started our study in chapter 12 of Genesis, we saw that Abraham went down to Egypt. The Pharaoh noticed that Sarah was beautiful. Abraham said, she's only my sister. Pharaoh took her. We went through this whole scene earlier. Now, it's true that that was in the beginning of Abraham's walk with the Lord. But Abraham has been walking with the Lord for over 20 years now. But they're still part of the old country that Abraham carried with him. Fear. Particularly fear of personal attack. He was afraid of the Pharaoh, that the Pharaoh would kill him in chapter 12. In chapter 15, after that battle between the kings, it says that God appeared to him and said, Don't be afraid. Then in chapter 20, you see it again. Remember, Abraham lived a life that was so unusual for that time. He did not live in a fortified city. So he didn't have the walls of a major city to protect him. He lived out in the country in tents. He did not align himself to any particular king or any particular kingdom. So he had no armed soldier or army loyal to him. And so he felt vulnerable. Even even though he had just had a recent conversation with God about having a baby and about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he still felt vulnerable. We hear a lot about Pilgrim's Progress, but this is a story of a Pilgrim's Regress. And it speaks powerfully to all of us struggling to make progress with our most repeatable offenses. He's not alone. Most of us have at least one particular area in our life we've struggled with for years. It's the one sin we can't seem to get a handle on. The one area of our life that seems to refuse to submit completely to the Lordship of God. And we've learned how to rationalize being repeat offenders. Much the way that Abraham did. Notice some of the excuses he gave for his blunder. Excuse number one, the situation demanded it. I mean, there's no fear of God in this place. He reasoned that the people of Gerar must operate on the same value system of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he opted for situational ethics. He decided that the circumstances determine your value system. And in this particular place, 
You might have to lie a little bit to survive. We hear a lot about the new morality. Listen, the new morality is just a new name for a very old morality. Because from the beginning of sin, men have rationalized disobedience under the excuse, well, under these particular set of circumstances, that's what I had to do. The thing is, God's character and values transcend culture and circumstances. That's why when Moses came down from the mountain, he wasn't bringing the Ten Suggestions. He was bringing the Ten Commandments. Excuse number one. Well, the situation demanded. Excuse number two. It's a matter of perspective. I mean, after all, she is my sister. So it just kind of depends on how you look at it. See, much sin is excused under the frame of reference of perspective. We're good at this. Some of you remember some years ago, a very uh, high-ranking political figure was asked about a sexual scandal. And his response was, it depends on what your definition of is, is. We are so good at changing the meaning of words. It's an alternative lifestyle. It's keeping up with the Joneses. It's playing the game the way everybody else plays it. We're very good at reframing the topic of sin. But dirt by any other name still makes a mess. Abraham said, well, situation demanded it. Besides, it's it's really a matter of perspective. And then, and this is amazing, his third excuse. It's really God's fault. He said, where did he say that? Notice that little phrase, when God made me wonder. Now, there are seven Hebrew words for the concept of wondering. This is the most negative. Every time it appears in the Old Testament, about 50 times, the context is always negative. When the Bible talks about wandering around in a drunken stupor, this is the word. When the Bible talks about how a sheep wanders off to its destruction, this is the word. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, following God hadn't been easy. I have lived in constant danger. And you just got to use your wits to survive. So he's implicating God's will instead of confessing his fear. Because he still thinks the threat of man can trump the promise of God. Otherwise, he would have risked his own life to protect the woman that was supposed to bear the promised child. And I want you to notice quickly the consequences that were paid for his lack of faith. One was that he endangered Sarah and her seed. See, by now, Sarah is probably 
several months pregnant. She may not have been showing yet, but she's conceived. Is he going to let his son be born in another man's tent? Think of the rumors and the accusations surrounding Isaac's birth if that had happened. Imagine this. She's pregnant. Isaac is conceived. And then they try to tell people that a 100-year-old man is the father when she's living in the tent of a king. Who's going to believe that? It's one of the few times you shake your head because you know what Abraham looks like? His nephew. Do you remember when Lot says to the men knocking on his door, Hey, take my daughters and do what you want with them. He would sacrifice their virtue to save himself. This is one of those times in the Bible Abraham's looking more like Lot than Lot like Abraham. So he endangered Sarah and her seed. Second, he influenced Abimelech to sin. His duplicity put another person in a compromising position. Because here is one of Satan's greatest lies. He whispers it in the ear of every man that sits in front of a computer looking at porn. In front of every kid tempted to cheat on a test. Or every woman tempted to flirt with her boss. Not hurting anybody. It's not hurting anybody else. But the fact is, spiritual failure always has social consequences. Always. I'm supposed to be my brother's keeper, not my brother's tempter. And so he didn't just endanger Sarah. But he influenced innocent people in the direction of sin. And one more thing. It weakened Abraham's testimony. Abimelech brings him in and says to him, You've done things to me that ought not to be done. This man was called by God to be a blessing to nations. And he has become a curse to nations. People can't get pregnant. Wombs are shut. He's cursed the very people God called him to bless. It's ironic to me. Abimelech seems to possess a greater fear of God than Abraham does. And it's tragic when the unbeliever can rightly accuse the believer of inconsistency between his profession and his practice. So here's the thing. God prevented the first two consequences, but he didn't the third. God protected Sarah and the seed. God protected Abimelech from committing sin. But God did not stop Abraham's testimony from being soiled. Last July, or or rather, uh, last November, just 2009... A guy named Andy House is down around Galveston. Now, I won't pronounce this correctly because I have no clue what this is. 
It was a 2006 Bugatti Veyron EB. You car nuts know what that is. He had just bought it a month before for $1.25 million. This car can go over 250 miles an hour. And it was one of only 15 like it in the world. So he's driving along the coastline, drops his cell phone while he's driving, starts looking down on the floorboard to find his phone, which just goes to show just because you're rich doesn't mean you're smart. So he's, <laughs> he's reaching around for his cell phone, finally grabs it, looks up when he does. This big old brown pelican had flown right by next to his car. So startled him, he dropped the phone again, let go of the wheel. It swerved, it lost control. Car winds up in three feet of salt water. You see, doesn't matter how blessed you've been. If you're not vigilant, you can wind up off course. And here's Abraham. As blessed as any man in Scripture. And he lost his focus. And his pilgrimage was detoured. It's a wonder to me that Abraham could be a repeat offender. But an even greater wonder to me is the way God prods his clods. Notice the wonder of God in two ways. Number one, notice in keeping people from sinning. This is interesting to me. So God appears to Abimelech in a dream. And God says, essentially, touch her. And you're a dead man. Notice that God considers fooling around a capital offense. Taking a man's wife is a direct affront to God who personally sealed the marriage covenant. Did you notice what God said to Abimelech? I have kept you from sinning against me. Not from sinning against her. Not from sinning against him. I've kept you from sinning against me. It reminds you of Psalm 51.4 when David is confessing his adultery of Bathsheba. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. See, it's amazing to me. Even pagans know it's wrong to take another man's wife. You ever notice that? The the Hollywood industry never makes a movie where you wrote for, for married people to wind up in bed together. The industry knows what entices us. And every TV show and every movie is about people who aren't married or maybe who are married but not to each other winding up in bed together. And yet, let a Hollywood star's mate cheat on them, and they appear on the cover of People magazine talking about how heartbroken they are. Because even pagans know you shouldn't mess with somebody else's marriage. It is an affront to God Almighty. And so Abimelech is quick to plead the integrity of his heart. Lord, I didn't know. My conscience is clean. And then God says something amazing. God says, you're right. That's why I did not let 
you touch her. Now ponder that phrase for a second. God said, I stopped you from sinning. Because if you had touched her, even though your heart was clean, it would have been sin. So somehow, God put this disease upon Abimelech's household. And the judgment was actually God's kindness in preventing a far more serious offense. So, think with me for a second. How has God kept you from sinning? If you look back on your life, I bet you can think of ways and times where God, in His kindness, sent judgment on you to keep you from something worse. I've had conversations with brothers who said, you know what, God put me in difficult economic places in my business because I was becoming too proud in success. And God's judgment saved my soul. I've talked to uh, church leaders who said, God sent great stress and toil and trial to our church because we were losing our focus. I even talked recently to a brother who said, I bought a porn movie and went home to watch it while the family was gone. And I got home and the electricity in my house went out. <laughs> wasn't out next door, wasn't out across the street, it was just my house, electricity was out. <laughs> and he confessed it to me with a great spirit saying it was the rebuke of God. You see, we know, because Job says he puts a hedge around us, that God protects us from evil done to us. We don't know how much. When we get to heaven, we're going to be stunned at how much evil would have been done to us if God hadn't protected us. What you don't think about is how much evil by us did God protect us from. This is the wonder of God. He protects His people. He keeps them from sinning. If He didn't, it's hard to imagine how dirty we would be. But notice also the wonder of God in keeping His covenant with sinners. You see, once again, we see the unconditional nature of God's covenant with Abraham. This covenant is not based on merit. It's based on grace. And don't interpret the gifts that Abimelech gave to Abraham as a sign of God's blessing on Abraham's actions. God blessed Abraham. Not because Abraham deserved it but because God's covenant of grace is unconditional. You think about this. If God did not bless repeat offenders, He wouldn't get to bless anybody. You say, why does God bless repeat offenders? It's the only kind of people He can bless. You see, there's a reason, I think, that this story appears right before the story of the birth of Isaac. It wasn't just Isaac who was a son of promise. Abraham was a father by promise. Isaac was born because God is good. Not because Abraham was. And God's covenant endures with us. Because His grace can out-repeat 
any offense. So let me close with a couple of important thoughts. Here's number one. I think we can learn from this story that grace is greater where sin abounds. That grace is both repeatable and renewable. Abraham received grace back in Egypt 20 years later doing the same thing for the same miserable reasons. Grace appears again. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. The law came to make sin worse. But when sin grew worse, God's grace increased. Sin once used death to rule us, but God gave people more of His grace. So that grace could rule by making people right with Him. And this brings life forever through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increases, grace just abounds. Look at verse 20 from the message. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Paul in Romans is trying to teach us how people get saved. And he's using Abraham as the classic case. Abraham is not saved because he's so morally good. He's saved because he put faith in the God who made a promise. People can't repeat their sins enough to exhaust the supply of the grace of God. Now, you hear that and you think, well, boy, isn't that going to encourage people to sin then? You preach a message of grace that radical, aren't you going to give people a license to sin? Which, by the way, people have been sinning pretty good without a license. I don't know if you've noticed. (laughs) But here's Paul's answer. That sin is grievous. Where grace abounds. Now Abraham's relapse reminds us sin has no expiration date. And no believer becomes immune to the old nature's pool. I bet even Gaynell would say that she struggles at least once a year with a bad thought. Back in 1999, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study by a couple of uh, expert toxicologists from Phoenix, two doctors there at the Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center, on snake bites. They spent a whole year just studying people that had been bitten by snakes. Now, here's the amazing thing they found. You ready for this? 15% of people bitten by snakes the previous year were bitten by dead snakes. They don't understand that snake has a reflex action. It can be dead. In fact, a rattlesnake can be decapitated. And for one full hour, that head still has a reflex action. It'll snap and inject that poison in you. That old nature, buried in the waters of baptism, placed on the altar before God, crucified in Christ, don't think that old nature can't come back to bite. Sin has no expiration date. So how do we resist being repeat offenders? Now here's the great question that churches and Christians battle with. And the typical answer is, well I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just bind up that old nature with extra laws. It's called legalism. And Paul says it will not work. Instead he says, let's bathe that old nature 
that new nature with grace. So look at Romans 6, the next four verses. So do you think we should continue sinning so that God will give us even more grace? No! We died to our old sinful selves, so how can we continue living with sin? Do you forget that all of us became part of Christ? We were baptized. We shared His death in our baptism. When we're baptized, we're buried with Christ, and we shared His death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the wonderful power of the Father, we also can live a new life. Now, he's arguing that grace is going to do two things for us. Number one... It's going to make sin more offensive to repeat offenders. What do you think God's abundant grace poured out on Abraham did? Do you think it made him more rebellious or more repentant? Paul says, no, people who grasp their baptisms are not going to want to sin more so they get more grace. Was they understand the goodness of God, when they understand what Christ did for us in His death and resurrection, and they participate in that, sin is going to become more nauseous to them, not less. Nobody with a small view of sin is going to make a big difference in the kingdom. And second, he says, grace is going to release the offender from the power that causes him to keep repeating that same offense. You cannot come up to an unbeliever who does not have the blood of Christ, does not have the spirit of Christ living in him, and tell him to subdue that old nature by just trying harder. Paul says no. Grace does not cause the flesh to disappear. What it causes is the flesh to be disarmed. It takes away its power. Verse 6, we know our old life died with Christ on the cross so that our old sinful selves would have no power over us and we wouldn't be slaves to sin. Listen, nobody who is serious about grace will be casual about sin. I want to read to you Just one paragraph from a book called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. I agree with what he says. It's time for Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we're not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be well if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I'm defeated by something, I'm unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I'm saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I'm disobedient, I'm placing the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may, in fact, be defeated. But the reason we're defeated is because we've chosen, in fact, to disobey. We've chosen to entertain lustful thoughts or to harbor resentment or to shade the truth a little bit. Like Abraham, many believers live too casually with a sin they keep repeating. Think about it. For Samson, it was lust. It plagued him his entire life and walk with God. He never got serious about his struggle with lust. For Moses, it was anger. It showed up when he was a young man killing the Egyptian. It showed up years later out in the desert striking the rock. For Peter, it was people-pleasing. Whether he was in a fire 
being questioned by a maid as Jesus is on trial or with a group of Jews asking him, does he eat with Gentiles? Peter's lifelong struggle was being a people pleaser. Most of us, no, all of us have that one sin. We repeat too much. And we've learned how to rationalize it instead of confess it. I wonder what it is for you and what excuses have you made. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Take some action. Last July in Jasper, Texas, this 26-year-old gang member named Alex Fowler had this tattoo on his neck, Crips for Life. He breaks into this 87-year-old woman's house to burglarize it. Easily could have overpowered her. I love this. She went and grabbed a can of Raid and started running after him. Said, get out of my house or I'm going to spray this all over you. Chased him out of the house. The priest arrested him. You see, the Bible says over and over, you can resist that devil. You can make him flee from you. Stop accepting what God wants expelled. I believe the text indicates that God's goodness to Abraham helped him make great progress in his struggle with fear. In fact, we'll see in a couple of weeks. When God would ask him to take the ultimate proof of the promise and put it on an altar, he'd reached the point in his life that fear didn't control him anymore. See, God can do great things with clods. And he'd love to repeat for us what he did for Abraham.